0: When you write something, you better be sure you have to be able to stand by it. You need to make sure it's the truth. You need to make sure it's empathetic. You need to make sure it's well-researched. You're spitting facts and not just you know, speculation. People see that effort.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Joe. You're listening to Occupational Hazards, a series of candid conversations with some of the most inspiring people I know as they share their path to finding their calling and all the gritty realities of their jobs. Whether you want to demystify your dream job or are someone like me who enjoys getting a peek into other people's work lives, then this is the podcast for you. Our next guest built a career finding poetry in the political and gives us a behind the scenes look at what it was like to craft words for a former head of state. Jian Lao is a poet and writer from Manila, Philippines, who specializes in speeches, essays, and profiles. He is a regular contributor to publications such as CNN Philippines, ANC, The Philippine Star, L'Officiel Philippines, and Esquire Philippines, among others. He was a finalist for the 2013 Maning Ning Poetry Award, given to the finest poets in the Philippines under the age of 28. He has released a book of poetry, All the Winters of My Body, as well as a poetry zine, What We Can See of the Sky. Jian obtained his Bachelor of Science in Management, Major in Communications Technology Management, from the Ateneo de Manila University, where he did a study abroad program in Japan, a place he has a self-described love affair with and that became fodder for much of his work. He was also a recipient of the Loyola School's Awards for the Arts for Poetry upon graduation. For his first job out of college, Gian worked as a speechwriter for President Benigno S. Aquino III, better known as Noi, President Noi, or Pinoy. From 2010 to 2016, Gian drafted major policy speeches for Pinoy, including the State of the Nation Address, as well as various speeches on the economy and the energy sector. As part of the Presidential Communications Development and Strategic Planning Office, he staffed for the president in various speaking engagements, international summits, and state visits. He also drafted speeches and statements for the presidential spokespersons and other members of the cabinet as well as assisting in strategic communications planning and policy analysis for various government agencies. Jian went on to work in strategic communications, including doing consulting in corporate communications and public affairs, writing speeches for corporate executives in the private sector, and more recently, serving as communications lead of the Metro Pacific Hospitals COVID Task Force. Self-aware to a fault, he claims he has a black belt in self-acceptance and often comments on how his name means arduous in Vietnamese. In an interview with Chinoy TV, when asked to elaborate on the difficulties he had encountered during his time as a presidential speechwriter, he responded, working in government meant handling crises. The question was, what can you write within the limited time that you're given that can help improve the situation while also telling the truth and staying true to your principles. His first job may not have been easy, but it definitely gave him creative material for a lifetime. And now here's Jian to talk about his work in the palace and his poetry. Hi Jian.
0: Hey Joe. And hey, everyone, I'm Gian. I am a poet and a former presidential speechwriter.
1: Yes. So I've been asking this to all guests before we dive into your work. Where are you in your pandemic arc?
0: Where am I in my pandemic arc? I'm in the go-to-work-everyday part of the pandemic arc, which I feel like is a little more advanced than, than other people. But I guess happy to be, you know, To to be reminded that there is life after this, and this is what it could be like.
1: Yeah. Did you guys do the work from home thing?
0: Yeah. I did that for about a year and just never left the house. So it was very strange. uh, And I didn't know if I could still function as a human being or as a normal human being in in a workplace. But apparently I can. And uh, very grateful for. You know, at at the beginning, it was weird. I wanted to cry at every unusual interaction I had. You know, small talk with the receptionist. uh, that was so precious to me. I guess that's the poet side. Um, Just, you know, people randomly talking to people in the pantry. People I don't kind of consciously reach out to online. And talking to them again and having to adjust to viewpoints that I don't seek out. I really miss that, apparently. Uh, I I guess it's a, a part of being human that I took for granted. That's extremely
1: poetic. I mean, to go back to what you said, you know, it's the poet in you. How does one become a poet? Like, how did you discover that that's what you wanted to do? And then how did you go about becoming that?
0: Well, anyone can be a poet like me, where you don't really make money from it <laughs> it's it's uh, it's just something you do you write a few poems to be fair I did have those pretentious years where I was questioning whether I could consider myself a poet or I could call myself a poet but then I just embraced it and you know stopped caring about what other people would say but how does one decide to be a poet I guess. It's kind of like singing, you know, there's really no one stopping you. It's like you can sing a few songs and call yourself a singer.
1: Yeah, but you're being extremely humble. You've actually won awards for your poetry and you actually also have joined, you know, pretty fancy writers' workshops. I mean, I guess a better way of asking the question is how did you develop your craft to the point that you got this recognition? Because it, there's a difference, I think, between You know, just singing in your shower, to go with the singing analogy, singing in your shower and then actually getting trained or recognized, and then, you know, cutting an album or something, which is, I think you've won the poet equivalent of what would be like a gold album in the singing field.
0: (laughs) Gold album might be pretty accurate. But I guess it was being with other people who wanted to write these things in college. I joined my, you know, little college org in in Heights, which does a real, in and which is a really good job of teaching people how difficult it is to actually write literature, um, poetry, fiction, nonfiction. And, you know, I kept writing things that sucked and uh, I hated it. And I kept wanting to write things that didn't suck. So I met some people through that org and they, they would ask us, you know, you read this person, you, you kind of write like this person and I would copy them. I would copy their styles. I would copy their sentences, really kind of deconstruct uh, sentences that I liked. Um, what did I like about this sentence? Can I write it in a similar way? So yeah, it was just a lot of overthinking about you know, about what makes a good poem and talking to other kids about it. And eventually you get into these workshops Workshops aren't really accomplishments. I feel they're more of okay. You have something. You have some raw material, and we're gonna, you know, put you in front of all these accomplished writers, and they're gonna tell you why your work is still not there yet. Well, occasionally there's a genius that joins a workshop, but that wasn't me, <laughs> and, and that's not like the usual experience for the Filipino write- writer. Yeah.
1: Can speaking of workshops, I think. I personally am extremely curious about the Siliman Writers Workshop, which to listeners who are not so familiar with it, if you are in the U.S., I think it was patterned on the Iowa Writers Workshop, but it's its own thing entirely. It showcases and molds Philippine talent uh, you have to apply to get in. Do you think you could tell us about how that
0: experience kind of shaped the way you do your work? Okay. Well, the Siliman National Writers Workshop is the oldest, in Asia. It was, I think the initial program directors were Edith Tiempo and Edilberto Tiempo. I think, I'm not sure, I guess they're both national artists. I'm sure that Edith Tiempo was a national artist, but um, they really kind of fostered a family of writers there. I think it began humbly then they started developing or like training writers who ended up becoming experts or, you know, uh, just accomplished writers in their own, you know, in their own right. And I was part of the 49th year of the Suleman Writers Workshop. And a lot of people say it's a rite of passage for Filipino writers. You know, some people say you just really have to apply there. That's just the path you take. I don't necessarily agree. And that kind of leads to your next question about what role did it play in you know in my writing. I think most of all, it gave me a sense of community. Because in college, I, I was already exposed, thankfully, to people who like to overthink these things, who like to really dissect sentences and talk about why a poem resonated with them and everything. I think that's what Suleman offers most of all. As you know, it you know it's it's also exposure to a lot of older writers. There are some you know factions in the writing community who think that it's very old school, very top down, very kind of weak the patronage and everything. But I do feel like that might have been true to a certain extent, but i th- I think people from my generation were able to kind of rise above it and really just appreciate the community. So we spent three weeks there. And the thing is, ours was the first batch that was situated or that was housed in, in the mountains. A lot of the Siliman University poems actually talk about the water because it used to be held in Dumaguete, which has this long boulevard that kind of looks out into you know into the sea. And you know, people get drunk there. And they, you know, they write and, you know, they spend all day looking at the water and we were so excited for that. And then they housed us in the mountains of Valencia in these cabins, which, you know, which were equally lovely, I feel, but just wasn't what we expected. And because it was the first time that, you know, there were people living there, at night when we would switch our lights on, we would really get assailed by insects we just couldn't identify and we had this mountain dog we named Nom Nom because it would eat all the insects and whenever there was an insect that was <laughs> too, too suspicious we would kind of take Nom Nom and have him eat it or like just kind of like like a vacuum cleaner or I don't know <laughs> like whatever but um, we were in the mountains it was it was pretty nuts um, pretty away from civilization and there wasn't really anything to do at night, apart from drink with each other and talk about writing, which was just wonderful.
1: In the program, how many poets were
0: there? Um, that's me, Oscar, Jacob, and Dom. So out of 15 writers, there were four poets, but it varies from year to year. They don't really have a quota. I mean, they tried to have a poet, a non-fictionist and a fictionist, or like poets, non-fictionists and fictionists. But for our batch, it was four poets.
1: Okay. But you are not, I mean, poetry is not the only type of writing you do, right? I mean, I've I've seen your anthologies of the poems. But I think in recent years, you've become most uh, famous for your viral articles on a uh, certain news and features websites uh, you wrote a beautiful beautiful article about security guards right before the pandemic and about how they were kind of uh, holding together our society or other i guess their um, kindness <laughs> or ability to tolerate kind of so the in- injustices is what was holding our society together i'll put a link to that in the show notes because yeah. that was actually what made me reach out to you and say i wanted to interview you because You know, um, I've had other writers on the pod. uh, Everyone has different types of, I mean, there's people who write fiction, um, you know, different types of writing. The type of writing you do based on the responses of people uh, is one that I'm trying to think of like, what are the right words to express this? But it seemed to kind of awaken some political feelings in a lot of people, which I guess can bridge us to the other type of writing you do. But do you want to maybe talk about some of those articles that you've written and how did you start getting published online and how do you get inspiration for those articles?
0: Um, It's really just being an angry old man and um, for the security guard article I think it was well it was there was a hostage-taking situation that really prompted it but it was already an observation I made to, to other people where Security guards are infamously like underpaid. They're not even paid minimum wage. You know that a security agency pays minimum wage when their security guards are tall. That's how bad, I guess, the you know, the market is for these security guards. And I was like, how can we afford to do that as a society? We give this we, we give these security guards guns and then we underpay the shit out of them. So um, I wanted to write about that, especially during the, you know, during that whole hostage-taking thing. I, I feel like part of the awakening political feelings in people is also picking the right time to have these opinions. And then the other aspect is also having a mind to you know, make these observations about, about policies and really empathize with those victimized you know, by the, just the gross inequality around us. The other one was also me being an angry old man about Tulfo, the whole Tulfo phenomenon here in the Philippines. Uh, I guess for those who don't know, that radio show run by Rafi Tulfo in particular is sometimes jokingly referred to as the Supreme Court of the Philippines. Uh, It's essentially like, I don't know, what what show is it like, Joe? Is it like Maury? Or is it like... You know those those paternity. deaths. I think
1: Maury if oh. Mori could prosecute criminals.
0: <laughs> that's true. That's true. Because um, it's
1: it's we're not just talking. You know who's the father. It's actually, yeah. uh, people. I guess a way to explain it to people. It's. I'm thinking of like whether the right words. Okay, so <laughs> I guess it would be. Okay, it's not. I won't describe it. I'll I'll describe what I think it is. I think it's less, the root cause of something so much as a symptom of something in our society. How how about that? Is that a better way to put it?
0: Yeah. The article might actually explain it a little bit. Because um, whenever I would go to my gym, I would pass by the Tulfo studio and um, I would always see lines of people outside the studio, people sleeping on cardboard boxes and people with black eyes. Uh, Basically, it was... You know, as I wrote in the article, basically the highest density of people who have, you know, lost everything, uh, who have nowhere else to go. The people's and
1: court in a way. I think there, there might be a show like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I just wanted to, I spent the morning there and I just talked to most of them. And um, you realize that a lot of these people had already exhausted, you know, a lot of these more bureaucratic solutions. They've gone to the police. The police have given them a hard time. They've gone to the courts and the courts have held their cases in limbo and therefore they go to Tulfo. And I I wanted to write about that. And that also kind of caught on. Obviously, it was more, I think, an empathetic kind of diagnosis of the problem. I wouldn't call the people who go to Tulfo misinformed or misled. I think they're just doing what's, what's there, you know? And, you know, even... Some credit to Tulfo, though, you know, they're also responsible for a lot of, I guess, questionable things that have happened. But all credit to them, they also fulfill a role. It's really the job of our courts to do better. Not just our courts, but also our law enforcement and our government in general.
1: Yeah, and I think the one comment that I've heard a lawyer make, which bothered me because it was. I've seen the truth of it over the years is that they've joked that our country, uh, the Philippines, has the best justice system that money can buy, (laughs) which is, no, because they, I mean, that's not the topic of today's podcast, right? I mean, I I I can maybe have a lawyer here, or I, I, I suspect it's like this in many countries that share our profile, where there's such vast structural inequalities that Uh, If you don't have access to certain resources, because it does take money to take somebody to court. Uh, And then there are also kind of, uh, there are some uh, allegations of how certain judges can be swayed a certain way uh, if you have money or whatever. So to somebody who doesn't have resources, doesn't have political power or connections, where else would you go if you wanted justice served? So I totally hear what you're saying about kind of not judging the people. It's just that I think you were right. They have exhausted every other option. And the result, whether that's good or or not, it's it's kind of besides the point. It's we have to go to the root cause of the problem. And it's how do you serve justice better for a larger portion of the people who don't currently have access to it, I think.
0: Yeah, I think this impulse to dive into problems and understand them and kind of have a public reckoning with them, I think came from government where, you know, again, I was a speech writer and um, whenever you were assigned a speech, let's say it's the energy sector, your job is to dive in and see what the problems are, what the various diagnoses are, and um, what the policy, recommended policy interventions are, and basically what's going on. And then the speech is the public reckoning So maybe, maybe I missed that. So, you know, you you have the security guards, Uh, early stages of the pandemic, I wrote about how it might spread because of inequality. I I wrote about these lapses in the justice system that lead to the tool for phenomenon. I, I wrote about toxic masculinity in all boys schools. And I feel like it's the impulse to jump in and really understand the problem and to kind of share it with Uh, with the public and continue the conversation. I I do think that's what makes these articles a little more readable than I think typical opinion pieces. It's because it's an invitation to the public to participate in the discussion. I've gotten criticism for some of the facts I've put out or some of the opinions that I've, I've shared. And my response is always, yeah, if you think I'm wrong, then, you know, rake me over the coals. Um, let's have this discourse in public. I promise not to be disagreeable. Um, if you're right, you're right. But the idea is to really start the conversation. And I feel like people pick up on that. Readers are really smart. They really notice when something you write is for them. Just to kind of segue, when, when I upload poems on, on Instagram, uh, the ones that I wrote, Specifically for Instagram, always do better, always do better than the ones that I'm just sharing from my previous books. And readers are just really smart. And you know, for these articles where you come in with respect and you try to empathize with every stakeholder and try to see it from every perspective, people see that effort and therefore their response to your articles will also have. A lot of thoughtfulness and effort. And I have proof of concept because I haven't had really any awful interactions with any of my readers. Uh, I wouldn't say, even the tool for articles, they didn't even say anything about the article itself. They just said that, oh no, ABS EBN just released this article because they're going to lose their franchise and they're jealous of us. Well, you know, the first part of that was true. They did lose their franchise, but that's a different story.
1: Interesting. So, I actually, in relation to that, my question has to do with how you were able to juggle your work while, or not so much how you were able to juggle it, but how it was received at work. You know, to be outspoken about how you feel about some of these social political situations is not always something that some employers are so keen on meaning as you were writing these articles what was the response i guess from your employers at the um, time
0: well i did write an opinion piece about basketball and how filipinos love basketball and that was well received by you know by the corporation and like basically the leaders at the office but no feedback really uh recently i wrote about the passing of the president yakino and that was pretty well received as well. And I had uh no hesitation releasing that. But I think it goes back to writing. It goes back to the discipline and why I feel like people are reading my stuff and how people can actually, you know, replicate this. I am not, you know, the most talented writer either. I think it's just a matter of approaching it. And so the idea is to make sure that you empathize with all parties. Uh, to make sure that no one is invisible, that you understand the motivations of all stakeholders when you write an article, like say the security guard article, basically understanding the security guard, understanding the hostages, the, the agencies, um, larger society, rich people, you even understand them by saying, do we really want to you know, pay minimum wage to these people who have guns? That's an appeal to rich people, I think. That's not an appeal to like to the victims in the situation, right? So it's a matter of empathy, which makes me more comfortable releasing these things, even while under you know, employment, because you're releasing something that's fair. You know, when you write something, you better be sure. And this is something I learned from President Noy as well. When you release something, you have to be able to stand by it. You need to make sure it's the truth. You need to make sure it's Empathetic, you need to make sure it's well researched, you're spitting facts and not just you know speculation. And that really gave me the confidence to release articles like this. Obviously, there's still some discretion involved. You avoid conflicts of interest, you have to think if this will end up costing your employer and everything. But generally, I feel like if you can stand by what you say and you're empathetic and you're kind of not an asshole, then it's not going to get you in trouble.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned working as a speechwriter in the office of President Noe Noe who recently passed away. And you actually wrote quite a moving piece on it and quite a balanced piece, I would say, because you talked about kind of the highlights of the role, similar to this pod, right? we talked about the ups and downs, but you also actually talked about the parts of the job or the time serving in that administration that were kind of low points for you. I'll put a link to it in the show notes because I think uh, everybody who hears this should read that as well. But one question I had, which you just mentioned, which was also kind of touched upon in your article, you said he really instilled in you just now that you should fit facts, be able to stand by them and be empathetic. So certainly I think he was known as somebody who spit facts and always knew the numbers. Empathetic was not a word that was commonly used. What can you say about? I guess your maybe you can summarize your take on the article about, you yeah. know, where he stood on that spectrum of like logic, you know, or how he was perceived publicly versus how he was in private as it related to. Like logic versus, you know, feelings and empathy and all of these things.
0: Yeah. One of the frustrating things about Pinoy was he wasn't outwardly empathetic. And he's a politician. And we were the strategic communications office. So let's leave out the Mamasapano, and let's leave out Yolanda and these high profile lapses, I feel, in uh, empathy and in public empathy. There were also like other typhoons where he just refused to go because why am I going to go? I'm going to go there and we're going to take up two helicopters that could actually be ferrying goods you know, to the disaster site and people are going to have to worry about my security and think of me. He did see his security as a burden. So in that sense, it's not outwardly empathetic, but it was still very thoughtful to kind of think of these things. It was the humility. I think, you know, it was forgetting he was president and that his presence would actually have a net positive effect, not just on morale, but on operations on the ground, right? So, you know, outwardly, he really wasn't the most empathetic person to me or to other people. And that took a toll because there were many moments where people needed that figure. People needed that kind of also emotional leadership you know, uh, that emotional grounding, someone to tell us it's going to be okay, but I wasn't him. But would I say that he's not an empathetic person? No. Um, the empathy was always there, but in the form of, have you eaten? What about these people? Um, we're enacting this policy, but are we forgetting that? Okay, what, one example of policy empathy would be, okay, we're saying that we've lifted X million Filipinos from the lowest quintile of the population to the next quintile, basically. Now, instead of having this amount of people, you know, very, very poor, we have this amount of near poor people, which is like the next, I don't know, the next level, right? He was always the first to say, but remember all these near poor people are just one major sickness away from just falling back, and to me, you know, from a really no passion perspective, I think that's a very empathetic decision too, or that's a very empathetic way of seeing the problem as well. Uh, it's just not how we usually encounter our presidents, and so it was definitely difficult because there was no shortage of people telling him to just sometimes to just go to the disaster area and be president, but that wasn't how he saw his job.
1: Yeah. Another thing that actually connects that article you wrote on security guards, as well as the article on the president, you actually wrote about how he felt. And you've talked about this also in some of the interviews I saw you give afterward, after your article came out, he had told some stories about how he was ambushed and his security detail, or his bodyguards, actually suffered or perished because they were assigned to him right had they been assigned to a different figure maybe they would still be alive today and you know do you want to talk a little bit about I guess maybe how that shaped the atmosphere maybe his perspective toward his work or
0: outward feelings absolutely I think the beginning is being the son of Nino Yacino, and being born into the center of the country's political story, you know, he dealt with a lot of trauma. First of all, his house was always filled with, you know, different politicians because his dad was pretty influential. Then, you know, pretty early on, his dad was jailed. And they would have to visit him in jail. And the dad had nothing, no books, nothing to do, solitary confinement. Um, when they finally made it to to Boston and they were living there as a family his dad decided to go back to the Philippines and really challenge uh, the dictatorship but before he left he told his son if anything happens if the worst comes to pass then you're gonna be the man of the house because he was the only guy and it was you know it's very traditional thinking the man of the house concept but he really took it to heart and he was, I think he was 22 at the time. And when the dad was assassinated, he told us, he told us this personally, that he couldn't cry because everyone was crying. And if he cried too, then everyone, you know, everyone would be crying and no one would do the necessary work. And I, I do feel like it was a moment where he had to really shut off his, you know, emotional faculties. And then when he was, 28, 27, or 28. He visited his girlfriend in Alabang, and on the way home, they were ambushed. It was a really unstable time. There are lots of coup attempts in the Philippines to to unseat the newly seated Cory Aquino from the presidency. And his mother, right, became president at that time. Yeah, his mother became president. So I think two of his bodyguards died, and he has shrapnel in his neck, and that was, I think, impactful as well, in terms of his emotional state, he told us directly that he couldn't avoid the survivor's guilt. And he kept talking about his life as his second life. He would always say, after all, after all, this is my second life. And, you know, I might as well do the most I can with it. So I I, I haven't really read up Joe about survivor's guilt, but I do feel like it also has an impact. So that's kind of, you know, his mental state in terms of just trauma and guilt. The story I told myself when, you know, he was criticized for not welcoming the the bodies of 44 fallen soldiers in the South. What I had to tell myself during that time was, you know, were those stories that I would probably do the same if, you know, I had the same background. But like I mentioned in the article, I can't use this to shield him from accountability, but it does say something about the magnitude of the presidency, how such small frailties can lead to such devastating results.
1: Yeah. And when he was telling you these stories, was he telling you these, you know, when you had downtime or was this as material to write into some of the speeches?
0: It happened in between him giving inputs for speeches and just talking about why we should push for this policy or that policy, and it would just get to some of these topics. Most times, the meetings were uneventful, but whenever he tells you a story about the past, you kind of really take note because, you know, what was surprising about working for the president was he would say, my dad. And... He's talking about Nino Yaquino, a hero, right? And it was pretty it was pretty crazy. Um, so you always took note whenever he would mention something like that. Uh, there was another moment where I was talking to the aunt of my boss, Manolo Quezon. And we were passing by this main hall in Malacanang. And she pointed to the portrait of the late President Manuel Quezon and said, it's dad. And <laughs> I think my brain exploded um, because it's dad. Manuel Quezon is dad because, you know, he's Manuel Quezon is 20 pesos. You know, he's like a Philippine history. So it was pretty insane how, how human it all was to these people. And it's just also really interesting. It changes how you, you talk to people I think it changes how you perceive people and kind of how you treat them. Uh, You begin treating everyone the same. You realize their frailties, their humanness. I don't know. But yeah, that's kind of what got me through the six years with with Noi Noi. It was still really impressive to me what he did and inspiring. Uh, And these stories got me through those years, through the bad times as well.
1: Yeah. You talked about Manolo Quezon being your boss. Do you think you could tell us about the structure of the Presidential Communication Office at the time?
0: Yeah, sure. There was the complicated PCDSPO. I mean, it was, you know, I say complicated. It is OPS PCDSPO because the Office of the Presidential Spokesperson shared an office with us so that the Secretary LaCherda and uh, Undersecretary Valte. And- PCDSO is... Um, presidential Communications Development and Strategic Planning Office. I do realize that it's really funny uh, that we're the communications office and we decided to name ourselves that. But I think <laughs> it, was, it was more of a political play, you know, in retrospect, because there was also the Presidential Communications Operations Office, which was in the Samar camp. You know, they were loyal to BINA and you're loyal to MAR. And, you know, what if we put all our responsibilities and mandates in our name? So I think it was like kind of just claiming territory. I feel like those who work in corporate would understand why that happened. But <laughs> um, yeah, we were, we were named that OPS, PCDSPO, Office of the Presidential Spokesperson, uh, Presidential Communications Development and Strategic Planning Office. Um, and for the presidential spokesperson, it was Secretary Sherida and under Secretary Valte, the spokesperson and the deputy spokesperson. And for the communications office, it was Secretary Karandang, who stayed there until early twenty fourteen, if I am not mistaken, and under Secretary Kazon, who um, after Secretary Carandang left was also head of office.
1: Okay, and then where did the presidential speechwriters come in? How many of you were there? how did you divide your responsibilities and then I think I'm going to pull from some of the questions you got on Instagram which was how did you even get into the office as a fresh grad
0: I was heartbroken my girlfriend's parents didn't think I was good enough and they told her to break up with me and she did but we're friends now so I'm happy to share that story but it was really right after the breakup and I went to poetry night as people do and I saw my poetry mentor there, Kael, and he was wearing a barong, uh, traditional Filipino formal wear, just for, for listeners who don't know. And he doesn't usually wear a barong. He usually wears like some tight fit pattern polo shirt in gray or in you know light blue. So I told him, why are you wearing that? And he said, well, I've started work in Malacanang, which is where the president works. And he said, actually, I'm looking for writers. But the thing is, you have to start tomorrow. And I said, okay, I'll start tomorrow. Because I was heartbroken and I needed something to do. I didn't really start the next day, but I did text him. And I said, are you serious about the job? And he said, yeah, I am. And I can promise you, the salary is not going to be lower than 7,000 pesos. (laughs) And (laughs) I was pretty surprised because, you know, that's, that's what, how many dollars is that? $140 a month and well apparently it was a typo and he meant 17,000 pesos which was you know pretty good because I was a fresh grad at the time and I started the next week or like the following week so I started writing messages for you know fiestas around the Philippines for graduations for the Master Plumbers Association of the Philippines and the 75th founding anniversary of yakult philippines and that lasted for about two or three months and then they drafted me to the speechwriters group and they told me yeah yeah it's gonna be exciting what they didn't tell me was that i went from an 8 a.m to 5 p.m job to one that was 9 a.m to like 11 p.m and we just stayed in the office you know this was pre-blackberry era for us people already use blackberries but You know, when we got Blackberries, we could go home and, you know, just edit at home. But we just couldn't, you know, we had to finish these speeches. And because we were young, the approval process was Yusek kezon, Secretary Karendang, asek Mislang, PMS, then the president. It really went through five people and we would wait for each of those approvals. And we had maybe one or two days to get all this done. So... It was a tough job. You know, some of our dinners were just instant noodles and rice. And <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a funny time. Even if I think that people shouldn't be made to pay their Jews, I'm glad that I paid my Jews in such a way. You know, it had a lot of character, very poetic.
1: Gian talks about barely having time to eat when he was pulling all-nighters as a presidential speechwriter. Yikes. We've all been there. As health has become more of a priority during these trying times, I just wanted to remind everyone to pause, rest, and nourish your bodies. Sharing one of my favorite small business discoveries of the pandemic. The Chubby Company is an online food shop that serves your favorite Mediterranean comfort food. All their products are made to order from 100% fresh and homemade quality ingredients. The founder, Justine, has a deep love for hummus and other Mediterranean food, and she has chosen to share her version of her favorite dishes to the world, or at least to people living in Metro Manila, Philippines, for now. They deliver anywhere within the metro. So I know it's called the Chubby Company, but their food's actually quite healthy. I think they're called Chubby probably because they pack it with ingredients, uh, happiness, and flavor. So they're known for their classic hummus a tasty yet healthy snack to enjoy at any time of day, their crispy falafels which come either cooked or frozen, both of those have tons of protein, and their creamy garlic aioli dip which goes perfectly with any dish. To place an order you can send them a message on their Instagram page at chubby
0: chickpeas. Enjoy! That's essentially how I got into the job and they're just Four of us speechwriters at the time, it was tough. And the team grew to eight eventually. And we just had a little more time to do things, but it was still a difficult job because the president had multiple events in a week. Maybe he would do like uh, seven or eight speeches a week. So we all got like at least one speech a week, sometimes two. And during campaign season, you know, he would do these campaign sorties wherever he would have an event in the province. And we would have to, you know, come up with speeches for all of those. And he hated when we reused speeches. So we always had to come up with something new. That was tough. So we kind of needed a big team as well. Yeah, when I guess to listeners who aren't
1: familiar, when GN's talking about campaign season, because there's no re-election in the Philippines, uh, the presidential term is just, you know, one term for six years. But there is a midterm election, midpoint in the presidency, where I think the senators are uh, running for re-election. So the president actually made some appearances during that
0: time. Is that right? That's correct. And also when he was campaigning for Mar Rojas as his successor.
1: Okay. So I'm trying to imagine just a day in the life of a speechwriter. I mean, you told us the hours were long. Uh, What I really liked, actually, was I looked at your Q&A on Instagram and yeah. some people had asked you after i guess after you wrote that article a lot of people started following you and you did this q and a and a lot of people were saying didn't you feel bad about staying up till 2 a.m. and you you said something like beautiful about kpis which i don't know if you want to say it on air now or i can like read it out but i think that addressed the question about the hours but my my question has to do more with kind of just the process. I'm trying to imagine like day in the office, but do you want to talk a bit about your answer to that question about did you feel bad about having to stay up till 2 a.m.?
0: Sure, sure. Um, This all came from me trying to be cute in a speech and realizing that the KPI for a lot of our men and women in uniform, especially when there are typhoons uh, and other natural calamities, their KPI is the number of people who live. The number of people who survive and there are a few things more motivating than that so when people ask me about you know whether I resented the job for making me stay up to like the way I am I said well I was tired I was tired as hell there are a lot of moments when I wanted to quit but our KPI was you know whether or not we can make someone's life better and that was I think sufficient motivation for me never to never to complain about the work itself. I can complain about office mates, you know, complain about bosses, but the work always deserved our respect because of the nature of it. Um, The day in the life is very interesting. Day in the life of a speechwriter. I don't know what it looks like. It's probably our degree of being busy. Maybe looks like, you know, the five year chart of the value of Bitcoin. <laughs> it's you have a speech and you are super busy. You work, you know, 12 hour days, you know, 14 hour days, and you wake up the next day, you go to the president's house and you pray to the Lord that he doesn't have revisions, and you go to the event and you put the speech in a USB and you run with a USB to the teleprompter, and then you send one of the files to the people running the official gazette and to make sure that, you know, they have an easier time transcribing the latest speech. And there are no mistakes on the official record when we publish them online. And then you run to the convoy going back to Malacanang. And if you're late, then you're left behind and you you have to find your own way. Then you get to the office and then you do nothing. You just, you know, play a game on your phone. The boss comes in and they ask, "How was it? What's this mood like? Uh, how was the reception? Was it okay?" Then you just tell a few stories. Then you don't really have to do anything for maybe one day or maybe two days if you're lucky. And then you start over again. That was the day. Maybe you know during your downtime, another speechwriter is gonna ask you to be like, "Hey, can you can I have some like fresh eyes for this speech?" Or they're gonna ask you for a few words or. Ask you to co write a speech or sit down with them and kind of ideate. But that's easy, you know? That's like, that's doing nothing. But the something is pretty substantial.
1: Since there were four to seven of you, did you tag team on speeches or was it, or were there just that many speeches to give and it was one is to one where one writer was writing one speech?
0: If I'm writing a speech for the Filipino Chinese Chamber of Commerce, or Chinese with FFCCCII, and it's going to be a pretty short speech, maybe like a seven or eight minute speech, then I'll probably just do it alone. But let's say there's a World Economic Forum, Global Plenary, and they expect like a 15 minute speech or 20 minute speech. Then I usually tag team with someone, Tina, actually, I usually tag team with Tina, actually just her. And we just sit down and we're like, uh, I just want to get this over with because it takes a lot of stamina to write something that long, and it's just easier to have someone with you just to write the other parts and to to kind of take over like when you're when you're tired.
1: How did the revision cycle go? Were you working in the cloud or was it like printed pieces of paper where the the boss or your supervisors were kind of crossing out words? Were you all together in a room like like a newsroom and just like whiteboarding? wording choices like what was the revision process like
0: okay i write the speech then i usually ask tina to look over the speech and i email it to her doc file then when tina's done i show it to Kyle and i email it to him as well doc file then when Kyle's done i print it out and manola likes it physical so i print it out and he writes on it and when it's approved, I send it to PMS. This was, you know, post Karandang era. Uh, I would send it to the presidential management staff who would vet the numbers. And we would sometimes fight over it. Like, oh, no, the conditional cash transfer program is that families, this is not families, GN. you should use household beneficiaries. And I'm like, can't we just use families? Can't we just take liberty? Households is just so impersonal. And, you know, we would go back and forth on those things. Uh, That's by email as well. And they send it back. Then when it's approved, they're the ones who include it in the briefing kit of the president. And the president sees it. Then he usually calls us in like a day before the speech. And he asks us about some numbers. And he tells us to revise a few words. But usually he's very, he was actually very compliant. Uh, Principle, you know, he would read what you write, generally, 95% of the time. Then the next day, he reads the speech again, so we have to be there, whether in his office or in his home. And Sometimes he's just in his boxers, and he comes out, and he asks for the speech. And, you know, he just says, no, just do this or that. And you revise it, and you put it in a USB, like I mentioned. Then if you have time, you email it back to the office for the transcribers. Then you ride with the president and you run to the teleprompter and you load it to the teleprompter, like onto the teleprompter and on the teleprompter, you have to make sure that there's a line cut after every finished sentence because the president gets confused and you have to make sure that acronyms have periods in between them because teleprompters are all caps for him. So acronyms like, uh, the MILF. You have to make sure it's the MILF, not the MILF. And after you do that, Lol. You, should be, you should be okay. Uh, you just pray that the president reads it and nothing goes wrong. And that's the process.
1: We actually crowdsource some questions from the audience. A lot of them were answered in your Q and A. So maybe I'll link to your Instagram so people can look at some of them. But one question that came up, which I think you alluded to, or I think you actually wrote about it in your article, uh, one question that came up was: Were there ever times when the president went off
0: script. <laughs> There's so many times he went off script. Um, but my favorite one was during sauna 2014. It wasn't part of the sauna. Usually the sauna is a very thorough, very studied document. And you should stay on script just to avoid. It's a high-profile speech. Just to The avoid... state of
1: the nation, right? For those uh, not familiar yeah, with the term. state of the
0: nation address, yeah. basically. Uh, the Filipino State of the Union. So everyone's watching and you don't want to make a mistake or you don't want to imply something that you didn't mean to imply. But he went off script, sauna 2014, and he said something like, as you know, this is my second life. And sometimes people ask me if I'm ever afraid that I'm, you know, I'm disturbing too many people's rice bowls. He likes saying that, or rattling the rice bowls of you know, corrupt politicians, you know, and all that. Aren't you afraid? Stepping on their toes. And he says that, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, if it happens, it happens. This is my second life. If it happens and I'm gone, would I be able to say that I gave it my best and I tried to do something good? I think, yeah, I think I could live with it. And he said something like that. and. That was really inspiring to me, because I was in the translator's booth, making sure that we were like we had a faithful translation. And our boss Manolo was the one speaking into like the diplomatic audio channels. And it was a very emotional moment for all of us, him going off script and talking about his mortality. Later that night during the sauna party, I told him I would remember what he said and what he did that day for the rest of my life. Maybe even on my deathbed, I would remember it. And he just told me, are you really thinking that far ahead? You shouldn't think about dying yet. And yeah, that was like my favorite off script moment. Uh, there are other off script moments where he says in public that, oh, I didn't like the speech. Uh, I've asked people to take the you know, the teleprompter down. My, my I guess my speechwriters and I didn't agree on what, to say during this <laughs> <laughs> It was always very horrible. And it sounds more horrible than Tagalog, I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, I guess that leads to one of the questions because the theme of the podcast is occupational hazards. And one thing I've been asking all the guests is kind of what are the highlights of the job, like your favorite part? Maybe we can talk about as a writer, both as a speech writer and a poet. And then What are the parts that you think other people would find challenging? And then the third question is, you know, how would you fill in this blank? Don't take this job if you blank. Oh, okay. So maybe we could start with, okay, highlights and then like lowlights and then like don't take this job if you blank.
0: So the whole being a poet thing, lowlight is we hate each other so much as a community. Um, (laughs) We have a lot to say about each other. and. Sometimes I feel like, you know, um, it gets in the way. There are a lot of poetry scenes that do well because there's, you know, you can critique works by people you don't know. And here, it's always just really personal. Someone releases a book and, you know, you critique it. It's always personal. It's, it's hard for it not to be. The reality is we just need more poets. Highlights, though. Sometimes you write something It's like, you know how some people say, you know when you hit a home run or you know when you shoot a three-pointer and you know it's just going to go in. That feeling also exists for poetry and it's the best feeling in the world. You know you just wrote a good one and it happens to you one time or two times. Then you just chase it. You just keep chasing it. And it's the best feeling in the world. And for a speechwriter... Lowlights are when you don't really understand. Uh, Like I said, Noi Noi's government was a democracy. He listened to a lot of different people. And when he makes a decision, you don't question. And with him, he's not always going to explain his decision making to you. And sometimes you're reading the tea leaves and you just can't understand how a good person would do something like this or like that. That was difficult. But I think that was me being younger and maybe more idealist. You know, eventually you realize that corruption aside, there is obviously the element of corruption. Corruption aside, it's just like any other organization. It's not going to be a homogenous population. You're going to disagree with a lot of people. And it's a matter of making it work, staying true to your principles and, you know, respecting people. and trying to still get things done, even if you don't always agree. So that was a low light. You say uh, that...
1: corruption aside, just to clarify, because you mean that that is traditionally... Yeah, can you elaborate more when, yeah. when you say corruption aside?
0: The Philippine government is very corrupt. <laughs> and it wasn't all gone during Noynoy's term. But, you know, I think he didn't personally enrich himself.
1: No, did Okay. So that was the low light. And then highlight?
0: Uh, Highlight would be waking up in the morning or, you know, well, waking up in the morning and just not asking yourself why you're going to work. It was obvious to all of us why we had to go to work, you know, just make things a little better. And I don't think any job can kind of replicate that unless obviously you're Okay, fine. Some other jobs, maybe if you're a doctor, you're like actually saving lives or, you know, a fireman and you're doing a noble job. But that's what it felt like. It felt like, you know, I I never thought I would feel that way because I never wanted to be a doctor. I never wanted to be a fireman. I never thought I would get to feel that way. And it was a gift that as a writer, you know, I was able to maybe help in a more direct way. And then the final
1: piece, which is don't take this job if you blank.
0: Don't take this job if, both for poet and speechwriter, don't take this job if your ego is fragile. It's gonna make you feel really bad about yourself, about your writing, about your skills. Uh, (laughs) It's it's gonna take a beating, your ego.
1: All good points. I'm ruminating on all of that. But One thing that I realized I haven't asked you about was how did your background in business train you for entering the fields that you entered? And what was the educational background of the other speechwriters?
0: Okay, I can just talk about speechwriting. I I don't think business, I mean, with poetry, the business part helped with (laughs) self-publishing. And that's more or less it, you know, how much does it cost to print, distribute, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's pretty straightforward. For speech writing, they gave me all the economy speeches, all the business speeches. Although I never practiced, I, I never practiced. I never went into a corporation before I, you know, joined the government. I just knew like the theory of it and the way my parents would talk about business because you know we have family businesses. So I just knew about all that, and uh, I had a deeper background than the other, uh, the other writers. So one by one, Kael our boss was environmental science. Hermond was physics, or this hybrid course in Ateneo with chemistry and physics. And Ali was interdisciplinary studies, focusing on advertising. I think Charles, the other senior writer, was communications, straight up. Tina was creative writing. Eman was communications as well, and JC was European studies.
1: That's so interesting to see the blend of background in the office. And one other thing, speaking of a blend, I think one of the questions actually that came up in your Instagram Q&A was kind of what you learned from working in government. And I loved your answer, because I think that in the context of In the current administration and even in previous administrations, there's always going to be a blend of people who worked for different presidents at different points in time. And, you know, there's some people who choose to stay on even after or even when a different president comes in. And I just love the answer that you gave as to what you learned. Do you you want to repeat that on air?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The government is composed of human beings. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. When we criticize government, I feel it's very wholesale. You know, it's just a joke. The government is inefficient, they, they, they don't really render public service. But what I did learn from government is that there are so many simple people working there. There are middle aged ladies in HR who are so kind to me, who remember my name, and they don't really make much, and they have to sell snacks in the afternoon to make just a little extra income. And whenever I go back there to, to sign some documents or, you know, finish my errands, they say, Oh, Jan, you're back. Are, are you married? Are you here for money again? And then one time they even asked me, are you ever going to go back to government? And I said, well, the politics is so, so complicated now. And they just gave me this, compassionate look and they said yeah i know i understand so what that taught me is that we have to be human beings when we criticize right we can't criticize the government while you know making all their hard work invisible all these simple people when we criticize it's more for our leaders and not for the simple government workers who are really allies in the fight i think for a better life for most filipinos so yeah i think the job of the critic is to also identify who is friend and who is foe and it helped me also in my writing to never you know dehumanize or you know make these government workers vanish from the narrative you know as if they're just all horrible people I don't think it's a productive way to go about you know reforming government yeah
1: and when you say something just to connected to something we said earlier but you know when you you said people do like to criticize and you know there are statements made even on this pod right like the statement that you know Philippine government is corrupt yet there are people who are not corrupt that are in the government right so there's I guess structural systemic like maybe leadership issues there are all these different parts that comprise government I guess is what I'm trying to say and a lot of reasons why things are the way they are but I guess what would you tell somebody who was in your shoes and who wanted to join? Who was in your shoes, like when, right before you, you entered, what advice could you give them? Hmm.
0: Well, one is get good quicker. When I came in, I actually had to Google like national government agencies. I just didn't know they existed, you know, get good quicker, study more, work harder so that, you can speak out more because I realized now just how safe I was. And there was space for me to offer my opinion, and my ideas. It's either I just never read enough about it. Well, you know, the reasons contribute to each other. I never read enough about it. And thus I was never confident enough to offer my opinion, even when we were given space to. So that's one thing you could have helped more people. If, you just were a little more devoted. And the lesson I got from there is was kind of developing this hatred for leaving a room and asking myself how that decision got made, you know, or why that decision got made. So I always try to offer an idea or when, when I see something going horribly wrong, you know, try to say something because that's kind of what I hated about how I did government, how much I didn't speak just to kind of save my political capital, which I never spent. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what's next for you, career-wise, because we didn't talk so much about your corporate career, but in terms of, I guess, what's next for you, Career-wise, as well as any projects you're working on or ways people can get in touch with you. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, sure. I started working in corporate in 2018 and just this year started working in PLDT. And PLDT, which is the you know the biggest telecommunications company in the Philippines. So I'm pretty fortunate to, to be here. And what I took to this job from government is the idea, I feel that. If you know a lot about something, if you know all the stakeholders and you can empathize with all of them, you can actually do good wherever you are. You can really see who's not getting a fair shake and you can make things a little fairer uh, if you understand how everything works. But you need to understand how everything works because, you know, all these things are interconnected. You know, you you kind of, you know, pull one lever and others, you know, it impacts everything. So that's something that helps me. So. You know, people can contact me. Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Instagram as well, I, I answer questions. Just feel free to send messages, especially if it's, you know, about the Philippine government. I feel like I'm really happy to kind of unmask what it's like working there. It's actually getting a lot better, Joe. The salary standardization law is welcoming the next branches. And I know that cabinet secretaries, for example, might make around. 250, 300000 a month with car service and representation and travel. It's, you know, it's still probably pales in comparison to what they make in the private sector, but it's like a livable salary. I,
1: mean, I think that's quite a lot,
0: <laughs> so to be clear, right. on average. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I just, you know, I just know like what salaries the other cabinet secretaries were making in, in the private sector now, but uh, they really gave up a lot. But Um, What I can say is that for fresh grads, government pays a lot comparatively uh, compared to like other jobs, but I think the growth or like promotions are, are a little harder to come by. So I would actually recommend my path to fresh grads. It's a good way to learn about how things work and to, you know, get into or to develop an expertise that more and more people are finding useful, like say the startup community is very interested in regulation and regulatory. So if you work in government, you kind of understand a little bit more about that side. And it might actually help. It helps me having this stick in my brain about, you know, what permits you need and what's legal and what's illegal and what kind of regulation one might realistically ask for. I think it's also very useful.
1: Yeah, certainly. What about on the poetry side? Is there anything you're working
0: on? Not really. I've been writing. My writing mentor, uh, Larry, told me, sometimes you just have to have faith in the organic unity of your own life. Uh, so in other words, I'm not working on a project, but I write poems here and there. And I hope that there is some something that will tie them together into a collection. But no pressure. Sometimes I tell myself that joining corporate is actually just me working on a really long, long form piece about joining corporate and I'm doing like a five year immersion. I might actually stay longer than five years. So who knows? But, you know, it's something that kind of <laughs> calm, you know, like I'm collecting stories for the future as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we don't even we don't even get into this, but you led the COVID task force communications team for the hospitals of the Metro Pacific group. So I'm sure that's something uh like crisis management in government like taught you, no?
0: It helped. It helped me understand like, you know, how these things work and you know, if you're going to do a press release, how do you do it in a way that doesn't really offend government, makes them happy but also kind of paints an accurate picture of the covid scene or like the covid crisis in the Philippines.
1: Yeah, which I hope to be soon uh, over soon so that uh, we can uh, congregate in person again. I always liked listening to your thoughts and this was actually, or it gave me a lot to think about actually because I think that you're being extremely hard on yourself. I think that a lot of good was done. Uh, Yes, there were some moments that maybe people who worked in administration were not super proud of, but if you look at the net of it, I think history will show that You and the team and the administration did a lot of good, and uh, that's something that we shouldn't discount also. So I guess hats off to you for your service and taking all the lessons you learned and helping demystify this process for other people, for those who would want to do what you did and join government as well. I think you're so transparent. (laughs) This is, again, just a fraction of what you've shared in other forums, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this yeah I wanted to say that before we move to the lightning round but yeah
0: okay (laughs) oh a lightning round okay
1: yeah so just to close this off so that because we we end on a very like serious note so I I want to yeah I want to move to the lightning round which is just say whatever is the first thing that comes to mind so what inspires you
0: Mm. journalists
1: work of art you wish you'd created
0: Parasite.
1: How do you eat an Oreo?
0: Different ways all the time. It's boring if it's just one way.
1: Okay. Proudest achievement?
0: Writing for the president.
1: What would you want your legacy to be? Or how would you like to be remembered?
0: I tried to do right by the people, I guess. Recommended reading? Uh, Stephen Dunn, Different Hours. It's a collection of poems.
1: Recommended viewing. Or if it's not recommended viewing just for leisure, is there a work of art, like a movie, that best encapsulates what it's like to do the jobs that you're doing? The West Wing. Okay, that also gets a lot of flack, you now for being on a certain end of the spectrum. But what about it encapsulated your
0: experience? It's the humanity of crafting policy and trying to do good. It was very real and I think how difficult it is, but also how human and and valuable the government can be, even if you put good people and competent people in it.
1: Yeah, actually a side note, one thing I love about the social media posts you've been writing the past few days, because I think uh, this is something that people who read the article will see, but you said the president authorized you guys to write whatever you wanted after he passed away. And so you've been sharing memories that are, in terms of humanizing, you know, this person who a lot of us read about in the news, you actually would share stories about like the music he was listening to before he met the Pope, which like a, was like a mix of church music bukas palad but also like gangster rap right before right or how your favorite moments were like rocky, rocky and which songs or which genre each cabinet secretary preferred when you would do the post sauna celebration so things like that I think give a really interesting peek into the world so yeah humanizing I think was the theme of this conversation you've humanized a lot of the people. Uh, that you worked with but also try to look for the humanity and people that you know most people might not understand or the people you try to empathize with in in different corners of society so just my two cents what about your vote to play you in the movie about your life
0: oh that's interesting Stephen Yoon
1: love him he just (laughs) he just joined the academy he's now oh, a voting wow. yeah he's now a voting member so oh wow
0: congratulations yeah
1: I mean I don't know him personally but Stephen Yeun shout outs you got fans on the phone yeah. yeah and yeah so fictional character would be your dream partner
0: uh Catherine Bernardo in that movie where she's in Hong Kong I forget the name of the movie wait I
1: saw it with Alden Richards no yeah with
0: Alden Richards uh, Hello, Love, Goodbye. Hello,
1: Love, Goodbye. There you go. Yeah, okay.
0: that was a good movie. She was so attractive in that movie.
1: Yeah. What about the character was attractive?
0: I think it's it's just what came to mind first, right? But Philippine cinema has this thing about women breadwinners who don't get a fair shake or, or just encounter so much misfortune. But I feel like Hello, Love, Goodbye was very, you know, was very, I think, more real. It was less pathetic. Uh, like her character was less pathetic. She was very proactive and also pretty romantic. So it was quite nice. It's just what came to mind.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I agree with you. I was just curious, like, what yeah. about it? But yeah, and certainly an empowered female breadwinner that represents a lot of the actual uh, women who are in other countries kind of propping up our nation's economy. Uh, that's a, a, a more nuanced representation is always welcome. So what about any hidden talents or untapped potential, Jian?
0: Oh, definitely my rap.
1: Actually, rappers are poets, if you think about it.
0: (laughs) I promised myself after releasing my first book, I didn't want to release a second book that sounded the same. So I tried my hand at rap, and I was really bad at the rhythm part but I do think the language is pretty good.
1: Like, are we talking freestyling?
0: No, not freestyling. I would, I, I would record songs. I have, I have like one song, nice about the political situation that I never released, but I would bust it out once in a while at some spoken word event.
1: Please release a recording of that, or let's do some live event. I would, I would pay money to see that. <laughs> Nice. Um, who are your favorite rappers since you brought up the topic?
0: It's a pretty basic thing to say, but Kendrick Lamar is just really the best, in my opinion, the best yeah. right now. Yeah. So or... it's ridiculous that he hasn't, you know, released anything new recently.
1: Okay. What makes a good poet and then what makes a good speechwriter?
0: There's so many different kinds of good poets that it's to me, it's empathy for poetry. And for speech writing, it's also empathy.
1: Nice. Okay. So speaking of empathy, last question, the pandemic has wreaked havoc on a lot of people's mental health and situations, but what advice would you have to people who find themselves struggling during this time? Do you have any words that you found comforting as you were going through your own arc?
0: It's kind of it's hard to say anything wholesale because you know some people have really gone through just just the worst. if there's anything that kind of gives me strength, it's the idea that the fact that any of us are alive now is because our ancestors lived through the most difficult points of history, whether you know it was the plague whether it was just the political upheavals uh, in China or or here in the Philippines, revolutions and wars. We are the products of all of that. We are, like, right now, the endpoints of the entirety of history. It's in our blood to survive. It's in our blood to thrive eventually.
1: I like that. We're the survivors, the product of survivors.
0: Yeah, but it's going to be painful and it has been painful, but survival is in our blood. And, you know, if you think you can't keep going, you probably can. Your ancestors have taught you that lesson, even if you don't know it. I like that.
1: On that note, I'd like to say thank you for sharing all your stories. Uh, words have power, they can heal, they can uplift, uh, they can wound. But I think I love the way you chose to wield your particular gift by raising awareness and also giving comfort and entertainment to people. So thank you for the words and for sharing those words with us.
0: Oh, Thank you so much, Joel.
1: Yeah, that was freestyling. <laughs> like, Really, it's something that I felt not just after reading every article, but talking to. So I wanted to convey that. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you so much.
1: Okay. Have a good rest of your night. And yeah, good luck with all the projects. So thanks, Jian.
0: Okay, Joe. Good luck too. Goodbye.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, and share with a friend so that others can find the pod as well do check out at occupationalhazards.podcast on Instagram, where we have more updates from our guests and some listener feedback. Slide into our DMs. We'd love to hear from you. Catch you next episode.